Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings' excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one, so think ahead. Thanks for listening. Hey there, podcast listeners. This is a solo discussion episode where I'm going to answer a couple questions and talk about a couple things that have been floating around inside my hall of mirrors recently. My own internal mind meld, mind meld of one. I've had a couple discussions recently with some of my clients and this keeps coming up. So I'll just unpack it. There are two primary topics today. One is going to be this discussion about form versus function that exists in cycling or aesthetics versus practical considerations. And then the second part of the conversation is really something completely different. I'm talking about wedging and feet and orthotics and wedging and foot function. And I've already spoken about this a bit on other episodes, specifically about my own orthotics journey, blah, 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 me, 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 I, I, I. So, I'll try to generalize things a little more and make them hopefully useful to most or perhaps optimistically even all of my audience. This is a driving podcast. You might hear some beeps, some background noise because I'm on my way to Unbound 2023 doing the Team of Coaching Times POC pre-ride event, which got booked out very quickly. So I've got about 30 cats to herd on uh, Friday, looking forward to a little pre-ride, some discussion around the course, a bit of education, and maybe some questions, and some learning, because I'm not just here to instruct and teach, I'm here to learn as well. This will be my first Unbound. People keep asking me, are you doing the 200? And I respond, sarcastically, no, I'm not an idiot. But I will say that 100 miles of bike racing is plenty for me. I will also mention that I'm not really sure what the deal is. Because if we think about how something like Unbound became really popular, that is the 200 mile version, doesn't make a lot of sense. And it sort of speaks to 
one of the themes of my discussion, which is tribal thinking or tribalistic thinking or tribalistic culture, which could also be synonymous with nationalistic culture. And I am dangerously close to talking about politics at this point. So I'm just going to start talking. And if you want to play dinner table and not talk to religion or politics, then I guess maybe press stop. I don't know. Do what you will. But I'm just going to say things. So here's the deal. Uh, this is why I don't think the 200 makes much sense. I mean, yeah, is it really hard? Yes. Is it a giant challenge? Sure. But at what point does a challenge just become preposterous or not? And I understand there's a line there that people are perhaps trying to push. I, I get that. I've done that. There's a line that you can try to approach in events that's very different. Uh, let me rephrase this a little more eloquently, hopefully. There's a threshold, actually, where an event becomes so difficult that instead of presenting yourself to the event or thinking about your relationship with the event in terms of how you're going to do, what place you're going to get, or how you're going to perform relative to your peer group or your age category or whatever litmus test you're using, instead of thinking of it that way, you actually throw all that out the window. And the biggest consideration is, can I even finish it? Right? And... So there's an appeal to that. There's a draw to that. These are, you know, some people consider them bucket list things. Like maybe Unbound 200 is one of those things. Or maybe the Leadville mountain bike race is one of those things. Especially if you live in Florida. Like Leadville MTB 100 is going to be a real challenge for most people who grew up in Florida. Florida, Right? So I understand that. However, I will also say that there's a point when it just becomes to be judgy and blunt, pretty stupid. And here's why. If we think about how many hours a week most people train, by most people I mean someone who's got one or more kids, a mortgage, and a job. In 2023, all you have to do is put those things on your to-do list and you've got a whole life. You've got 40 hours worth of work or probably more. You've got all kinds of errands to run and kids to shuttle here and there and responsibilities to keep up with, baobabs to weed, we'll say, on your little planet floating through space. And this is everything from actual weeding to lawn care to dental care to pet care to uh, doctor's visits to car maintenance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. So being a human being in 2023, as we know, is quite complicated. And you add the never-ending pile of email on top of that, because we're all professional emailers now, and you end up with everyone being a bit overloaded. So these are just a function of the times that we live in to a degree. And when we consider that this type of person normally trains between, I would say, six and 10 hours a week, it's kind of a sweet spot. Some get around 12 and the ones who really kind of push more and get up early and either believe that they don't need sleep or they sacrifice their sleep or, and they sacrifice the sleep or they actually don't need it. Uh, most of you believe you don't need it and you actually do in my uh, estimation. Those people are pushing 12 or maybe 14. That's about as much as you're going to pull off unless you're in a special, very special category of human that is super type A or overachiever or maybe got an indentured servant for a spouse. So, and those situations exist. 
So most people are around six to 10 hours. You see where I'm going with this? How long does the 200 mile or 207 mile race at Unbound, however long it is, take in duration? Well, the past people do it in 12, 14 hours. Most people are looking at 16, 18, 20 hours. Why would you ever sign up for a race that is two to three times longer than your longest training week? week where the race is done in one shot. And the only possible answer can be that it's an event that you question whether you'll finish. And I get it. Uh, this is a thing like finishing unbound 200. I've never done it. So I'll just take a swing at it anyway. It's, it's a, an accomplishment to finish a 200 mile bike race. No question. It's hard. It requires stamina and endurance and determination and probably some stubbornness and definitely a lot of capacity to endure suffering. It also requires a lot of calories and fluid and, you know, bikes and money and time and all that stuff. However, I would offer that this type of challenge isn't necessarily, how do I want to put this? There's probably no way for me to put this without putting it down, which is kind of a dick thing to do because I've never done it. I've done a lot of bike racing though, so I guess I feel qualified to make a comment on the event. I'll say that if you're going to go live in the forest naked and afraid for 40 days and try to survive with a knife and like a leather pouch, that's an experience that will change your life, alter trajectory, alter your trajectory and probably uh, change you as a person indefinitely. I don't think Unbound 200 is going to do that. Now, there are probably exceptions out there. There are probably people who had cancer and then managed to beat it and then came back and did the Unbound 200. And perhaps it was a pivotal moment in their lives. And, and if that's your story or you have one that's similar, then I commend you. That's a great... Then Unbound 200 played a massive role in your journey. And that's awesome. However, I think that for a lot of us, I'll include myself in this category. We're sort of signing up for the marquee event, even though I didn't in this case, to be part of a tribe, to be part of a club. And I struggle with this. And I understand and recognize up front that I'm in the minority, right? I, I know this is supposed to be a bike racing podcast, and I'm obviously talking about bike racing, but I'm also like all over the place. So bear with me. I'll try to tie it together because. Tribalistic thinking exists in cycling, and this is my, my first point of today's discussion, is kind of outlining what I, my concept of tribalistic thinking or tribalistic behavior and my objections to it. And I think this has always been innate in me. It started when I was a kid. I was born in 1972, so grew up in the 80s is when I started to do all the kid things. And one of the most influential movies of my childhood those of you in my age range will understand, was E.T., the extraterrestrial. It was probably the first or maybe one of the first really big Steven Spielberg movies. And the special effects are preposterous by today's standards, but it probably came out in 1984 or something. And it had all these legendary moments, like one of the kids calls his older brother penis breath, you know, which was like earth shattering back then. And, and there were these moments of heartfelt warmth. It was kind of a classic Hollywood story, you know? It was, it was probably one of the predecessors of the many, 
endless blockbusters that we've had ever since. Uh, the real, I would argue, genesis of the modern movie era. Uh, I'm not a film historian, so that's probably wrong, but we're going to, I'll make that statement and someone can shoot me down if you want to. So the thing about E.T. is that everyone I knew, every single classmate I knew, was, this is probably, I don't know, sixth grade or something, I don't, I don't know exactly, loved that movie. It was their favorite movie. It was like a thing when it came out. All they could talk about was E.T. and how cool it was and how neat it was and how it, uh, they got to see an alien in it and a spaceship and penis breath and, I don't know, all the other stuff in it. And I was immediately, instinctually repulsed by this unanimous response because it was unanimous. It really bothered me. And I couldn't articulate it for well, probably until now, to be honest, forever, I couldn't really conceptualize why. My response was so polar opposite, so so repulsed, so, so much repulsion, that's the word that comes to mind. I just felt like the wrong end of a magnet towards that reaction. And I think the reason why is simply because it was so automated in people. It felt like they signed up for something without really knowing what it was, but also they signed up just because everyone else did. And that really, really bothered me. Uh, and I have to say that's a bit odd because it's not a popular opinion and most people don't think that way. Um, and I'm not saying I thought that way everywhere, every time in my life, but I definitely have a contrarian streak within my, my lens. And this, the reason this is relevant to cycling, maybe, is simply because cycling is an intensely tribalistic sport, right? And we have to understand a little bit about the psychology of bike racers to understand why. I think part of the explanation is that many bike racers, maybe even most old school bike racers will say, especially in the United States, were pretty much mainstream sport rejects. They were people like me who... I was nowhere even close to making any kind of high school football team. Like I was 105 pounds my freshman year of high school. My full-time job at high school was not to get my ass beat by the football team. That was my occupation. And to that end, I joined the wrestling team in a desperate attempt to try to gain some street cred and also toughen myself up a bit. And then I went through this thing called puberty and I came back next year and I was all a whole 135 pounds. So I raced, uh, sorry, raced. I wrestled 131. I believe was the eight, the weight category back then. Wrestling in high school is not really the most healthy sport in the world. However, I did learn some cool stuff. Ooh, Sternberg Museum of Natural History. That sounds cool. Oh, Family Worship Center. I'll be skipping that exit. So we see that the common thread of how cyclists might get stuck in this sport. Sorry, that was kind of a Deadpool moment. When, or not stuck in the sport, they might find the sport. As Mike Creed said, cycling chose him. He didn't choose the sport. How cycling comes to choose you, especially in the U.S., is in part because your tribe doesn't welcome you into basketball because you're 5'9", or doesn't welcome you into football because you're just not that kid and you have no muscle on your body, right? 
And then you sort of have this little bit of sad face emoticon and you go find a sport where lonerism and endurance and hard work, which are things that non-muscly people tend to do if they have drive, that's, well, that's cycling. And then you add a little weirdness to it. And if you're someone like me, who's got a bit of a contrarian streak in them, then that also appeals to you because it's European in nature or in origin. And so it's a bit weird. Now, that's where I signed up to be a bike racer. And I'm going to bash tribalistic thinking for a moment, knowing, accepting, um, admitting, and looking head on full well that I am the ultimate example of tribalistic thinking as a bike racer because I fell in love with the sport of bike racing for all the reasons I just described and many more. Um, The other big one was speed. I just love the speed of riding around my neighborhood on a road bike. You can go 30 miles an hour down a little hill without much effort. And I thought that was super cool. So when I'm considering my own perspective and, and many other skinny ectomorphic athletes who end up being bike racers and they adopt this quirky sport, I can see why their path led them to fall in love with it. And at the same time, I also will argue that this is not necessarily a healthy way of thinking when you do it blindly, right? It's just like get really deep into astrology, which some people of course think is total bullshit. That's fine. Just bear with me conceptually for the moment. You get really deep into it and it becomes quite deterministic in theory. Like really the deeper you get, the more your behavior is in theory influenced by these celestial bodies, right? I mean, you can apply the same concept to anything. You get really, really deep into something and it can become deterministic. I mean, you could argue the same thing about genealogy, right? Or DNA research or biome research. So uh, genome research, all those things. And we have to come to a point where we say, well, wait a minute, is everything just predetermined? Like are, are all my actions and thoughts and dreams and desires a result of my genome and my you know, ancestors? unique combination of my double helix spiral that is what makes me want to go race bikes. Do I have any choice in the matter or um, do I actually have some modicum of control or ability to steer uh, my direction in the world? Do I have any rudder to point my boat or am I just raging down the river uh, in a boat that was created by my ancestors and the river of life is taking me where I'm going? Okay, so that's the, that's the landscape of our question. And whether we're talking about biome, geome, DNA research, or we're talking about ancestry, ancestral traits, specifically inherited traits, or whether we're talking about astrology, I think the answer comes in consciousness, right? Being aware of who your ancestors were and the choices they made and making your choices in the context of what those what that history presents, uh, making your choices in the context of what the astrological chart will say that you are destined to do, or you could apply the same thing to the Enneagram or any, you know, any of these really detailed personality tests that predict how you're going to behave in certain situations. It's the same problem. So for me, it lies in conscious behavior. I mean, you'd probably be better in my podcast by now. In any case, I'm, I'm, I'm big on being conscious. Right. So, oh, hold on. Got to make sure I'm going the right way here. Oops. Yeah. Car's yelling at me. Oh, no. We've got 147K to go. Silly me. All right. So, 
yes, I put Google Maps in kilometers. It's part of my tribalistic belief system about bicycling. Uh, also, that I prefer the metric system because it's relevant. So there's that. Okay, what, what the hell am I talking about? Why do we care about all this tribalistic thinking? Tribalistic thinking is really fundamentally just jumping, doing what the herd does, right? That's my concept of it. It's joining a group to be recognized, heard, understood. It's participating in a group that has common values, right? So bridge club, uh, church, um, bicycling, football team, right? Uh, Dungeons and Dragons, you know, whatever. Uh, people who have watched all the Matrix movies, etc. These are all different versions of tribes. And when you really identify with them, you do things like, well, fuel their merchandising opportunities because that's how you, 2023, how you solve problems is to spend money. And so you do that by buying stuff that says the Matrix on it, like your Neo coffee cup or Trinity tote bag or whatever, right? So I'll try to paint a somewhat neutral picture, but the idea of cycling, where, where the tribalism of cycling causes problems for me as a coach and as a bike fitter is cycling is uniquely tribal in its values and its values are a bit confused, right? So I'm going to straight up get in the ring with cycling for a minute and punch it in the face or take a couple little jabs because I think uh, parts of the sport that are readily adapted by others, I find actually quite irritating. And I will also openly recognize that I used to not be this way. I used to think more like other people do. So that's perhaps why it's a little charged for me, but I'm just explaining my perspective. And I do this only so that you can think about it maybe, and maybe it helps you in your own journey. Because I do think that cyclists sometimes get a little confused and they hurt their performance with their choices. So what I'm talking about is the relationship between aestheticism and function, right? Or form and function. And cycling is unique, I would argue, relative to all other sports. Let's take a minute to beat up on some other sports. Let's take basketball, right? Now, some people might disagree with this, but I don't think pretty much anybody thinks that basketball uniforms are anything other than functional. Like they're made out of super cheap nylon with a snappy waistband and they're super flowy. So they're basically plastic pants with holes in them because that's how creative the, the they wanted to move more sweat. So they got rid of cotton and they found a nice synthetic made of dead dinosaurs and then that didn't breathe very well. So they just punched holes in it, right? This is like super, super, super low tech, old school Gore-Tex is what it is. It's fabric with a bunch of holes in it. And then that became fashionable or probably not even fashionable. That's the wrong word. That became traditional for basketball uniforms. So you wear long baggy shorts. And the reason they're baggy is because it's far easier to make clothing just be super oversized and have it not impede movement than it is to actually cut pieces anatomically for proper movement in sport, right? You see what that is? So when you see stuff that's just ridiculously drapey and oversized, it's a cheap and easy way to solve the problem. That's really what basketball clothing is. It's, it's shit clothing, to be honest. It's just garbage, right? But people think it's cool in a sense because Michael Jordan is awesome, right? And he wears a basketball uniform. Now, he just wears it because it's his team uniform. He doesn't actually have any choice. If you want to go out there and, you know, full body cheetah, cheetah colored onesie, like his coach would say no. And his team would fire him if he tried to do that multiple times, but he doesn't do that because he's smart. 
only in cycling do we get Mario Cipollini actually starting a race in a full-body leopard onesie uh, skin suit. Weirdly enough. Uh, did you know that was true? Look it up. It's a thing. So, and he would just pay his fine. But in cycling, we, we don't make the same traditions of our uniforms. We instead blur the line between function and aesthetics. And we do this in all of our equipment choices. We do it with our shoes, our cycling shoes, which look like Italian dress shoes. We do it with our helmets, which aren't primarily concerned with safety, but are these swoopy, weird alien-shaped things with odd points on them that become these... I don't know what they are. They're like, if you think about them, they're really obtuse. They're these abstract renditions of brain parts. I don't know what they are. And then you try to put more and more holes in them. Never mind safety. I mean, the thing's function is to protect your brain in a fall. But when most people buy a helmet, they don't give a shit about safety ratings. They just assume the government did all that testing or someone else, some regulatory industry industry or agency. And what they want is the right color, price, weight, and number of holes, right? Probably not even in that order. It's probably weight first for most people. More holes, number of holes, more holes being better. And a lot of literature about how ventilation is awesome. That's good. Because what do we know about it? And I mean, what do we actually know about it? As consumers, not much. And then they want uh, the price and then they want the right color. Those, those are the negotiables, right? I think I'm pretty correct on this. And so we confuse other factors. Helmets, there's some aesthetic factors, right? The color and the shape and the hole. Some people just say to me, well, I don't like the way that helmet looks or I like the way this one looks. I'm like, what? Why do you care? So to me, it's very curious. It's the same with the sunglasses. It's the same with the leg bands and the right length socks and the colorful kits and the stem that ha- can have no spacers under it, right? Because your bike has to look a certain way at the coffee shop. And this one in particular just irritates the living shit out of me. And I think I can say that even dropping an S-bomb because I'm a bike fitter. Uh, it just is like, dude, what are you doing? Um, you need to have your bike fit. And only in cycling do we have this wrestling match between how our equipment looks and how it performs. Like I've actually had riders come and tell me their feet hurt like crazy in these shoes, but they love them because they look cool and they're the right color. So they're going to keep wearing them. And again, to me, this is a very frustrating, maybe obviously frustrating choice, right? Because function must always precede form when performance is your goal. Now, if your goal is just to look good, like if you want to go buy a $12,000 carbon road bike with some ninja out paint job and then wear an all black kit and then, you know, sunglasses with the tiniest red accent and you want to just ride to the coffee shop and put your super expensive bike against the wall and then watch it glisten in the sun while you sip your three macchiatos or whatever and then ride home and you ride 26 kilometers at 13K an hour, I have no problem with that. Like, I'm not here to tell you that you should be a bike racer or that you should be anything other than what your heart desires, provided, of course, that it does good things and not harm to others. It's not quite that simple. Anyway, but I'm not here to tell you that's a bad thing either. Like, go ride ride your bike to the coffee shop or go eat muffins or whatever you're going to do. Make choices that allow the expression of your dream shine. That's what we're here to do is to shine your own light on the world, whatever form that is. In case you didn't know that, now you do. You can go about your day. So when we confuse our aesthetics with our the form of our equipment or the form of our bodies, 
we are confused. And I had a great conversation with a guy in Rye the other day about this. Uh, but before I get to that story, let me just also list the other sports that are in the same category as basketball near as I can tell. Track running, triathlon, swimming, all shooting sports, all hunting sports, basketball, badminton, football, baseball. You see what I'm getting at? Like other sports just wear uniforms that are practical, they're functional, and they have their team's name on them and their number, and maybe they've got a mascot, especially if you're in Australia, because all the teams have mascots. But in cycling, we don't do that. We have our own little universe of, of things that we think look cool, and this is the definition of tribalistic thinking. Because somebody who is not initiated in the world of cycling thinks you look like an idiot most of the time. And I know that some of you are smugly thinking, that's why I like it. And that's, I'm just pointing out to you that that is tribalistic thinking, right? It is, this is my club. This is who I belong to. I'm going to dress like a weird cycling goon and go into coffee shops, clicking and clacking on the floors with my cleats. And I'm going to think that that looks good because all my buddies dress that way. And we have our own thing, our own experience. And I'm really not trying to be mean or judgmental when I paint this picture. My goal is simply to help people think a bit about the choices they make in that tribal structure and do it consciously. And I, look, full disclaimer, again, facing forward. I do this. This is what I'm doing. I'm on my way to a freaking bike race. Like I go into coffee shops and I make little clicking noises with my cleats and I'm wearing my chamois and my jersey. It's a thing that I do. So I'm talking about myself when I talk about these clicks. However, I think there's still a contrarian part of me that looks at that little participatory party as a bit like ET. Like, hey man, everybody's got this kind of bike. Let's go buy one. It's the fastest. And I don't know. Maybe I have no point in this entire explanation other to just tell you that that bothers me and you probably don't care. Because if you really wanted to listen to a podcast full of my opinions, then, well, I don't know what. But I think the problem comes as a fitter and as a coach when I do have riders say to me, well, I don't like the way that SMP saddle looks. It looks funny. So I'm going to keep using my whatever, such and such that's axe murdering me in the balls or you know, ripping my genitals off. Like, this is not a good choice. Same thing with the shoes. Uh, arguably the same thing with the helmet, although they all do pass you know, whatever American safety standards, which are higher than Europe's, I believe, etc. So... There are some instances where the aesthetic devotion um, doesn't cost you performance. It's just you want things to look pretty. And I have absolutely zero problem with that, assuming the function takes care of the function. But all I'm saying is the priority is function. The secondary tier is form. And I appreciate nice things as much as anybody. In fact, it's sort of ironic that I'm giving this whole spiel because I probably am more dorked out on things like clothes and shoes and bits like that than most people who are in the cycling world by a long range. I mean, the sport is full of a bunch of engineers and engineers, generally speaking, aren't people who are concerned with aesthetics. But in cycling, for some reason, they fall in love with an extra, extra small jersey and shorts that are just the right length and shoes that have rounded toes. Why is this? Okay. 
I'm going to stop talking about that now because I feel like I'm getting sick of the sound of my own voice already. And that's not good because I got to get to the important part of this podcast. And hopefully you found that at least remotely interesting. I have no idea. Maybe it was just a rambling tirade of vortexy bullshit. Stepping forward, the next topic I want to cover is a little more technical. And I had a few questions about this recently. So I thought I'd unpack it. And it is simply an expansion of the discussion around feet. And more specifically, around wedging. I've had a few people ask me about wedging in past and more recent conversations, including some other fitters. And they just want my perspective on wedging. And generally speaking, I will say that I think that wedging is to be avoided. I'll say my overarching philosophy is that I want a strong, stable, functional foot. I have observed that most bike racers have pretty crappy ankle stability and pretty weak feet. And there's a lot of misconceptions out there about arches and arch support. Uh, The most simplified version is that if your arch is in a cycling shoe, it should be supported. And for me, there's a critical distinction. The distinction is the difference between an arch that is mechanically supportive, that is hold your foot up in a certain position, versus an arch that is proprioceptively present. And there aren't many of these. And there's some that blend the line, right? Uh, Blur the line, we'll say. Uh, Some that are really fuzzy or squishy foam. That might be something that's sort of proprioceptive, but offers some support. But many footbeds are quite stiff and they're mechanically supporting the foot, putting the foot into what we think is sub-tailor neutral, right? This is the the talus joint, the talocalcaneal joint. Did I say that right? The joint between the calcaneus and the talus. And what we want is proper alignment so the ankle is stacked vertically over the, the bones of the foot on the plantar surface of the foot, right? which is all the bones that make up the big arch, the medial arch. That's the arch that is closest to the crank arms. And there's also a lateral arch and a transverse arch in the foot. But the medial is the one that most people are familiar with. And that's probably the one that has irritated you the most if you've ever had plantar fasciitis. And it's also the arch that is sort of infamous for being collapsed or pronated. And when a foot that is healthy and functional and has some tensegrity to the structure steps on flat ground, there's space in that arch. Or when you walk in the sand, you don't see a triangle shape, you see like a C shape because the space under the medial arch is floating above the sand, unless it's like really deep, squishy sand. And so when this happens, when you step down and the arch floats, what's happening is there's a normal relationship of the foot to the ground. There's a heel strike phase which is equal to supination and deceleration. Then there's a lateral uh, midfoot stance phase where the weight is being transferred through the middle of the foot, but in a, in a foot with proper arch integrity, it really ends up being on the outside edge of the foot. And then the weight goes from the metatarsals backwards, kind of goes five, four, three, two, one, from the fifth, which is the pinky toe, to the first metatarsal, 
And then you push off from that first metatarsal. And when the arch has integrity and the big toe points straight ahead, then the arch can actually have structure and form to it. And the foot acts like a little spring and you go boing and you bound off, right? That's when we're jogging or running or walking to a degree. And this is the problem with rounded cycling, rounded toe boxes and cycling shoes or any modern footwear. So they smash that first toe in towards the midline of the foot. And that prevents the big toe from going straight when you are pushing off of it and it is in a dorsiflexed position or pointing up position, right? Like the dorsal fin of a shark. And that's what helps give the arch integrity. This mechanism is called the windless mechanism. When you pull your big toe up, you'll see your arch gains tension and structure. So if you want to understand this, just take off your, your shoe and your sock for a moment and reach down and put your, put your foot on the ground and then lift your heel up about an inch and then lift your toe up. Pull your big toe up with your hand, with your fingers, and you'll see your arch just light up, right? That's the windless mechanism. And that's your own orthotic at work effectively. That is the structure of your foot. And so what we want is that orthotic to be strong and stable on its own. And because cycling shoes are so rigid, they make that orthotic crappier because they allow the foot to be lazy. And then the foot becomes less structured and the arch begins to lose integrity and drop. And the navicular bone swings in towards the crank arm as the entire midfoot rolls down and in too much pronation, right? Supination and pronation aren't bad things. They're just not uh, helpful when they become excessive. And supination can, can have the same problem with supination, right? Either one can be overkill. So, or too much. Too much of a good thing. And so when we support, first when we put the foot in that rigid cycling shoe, the carbon shoe, this is why uh, Signore Vittoria didn't want to make carbon shoes or probably with Signore CD, right? Didn't want to make carbon shoes because he thought they would be too stiff because they are. Uh, there, There's no natural mechanism for human foot to be stabilized by that stiff of a lever. But when we put the foot on that lever, it allows the foot to be passive. And when it when it's passive, then it loses strength. It loses tone. It becomes deconditioned. And when your feet become deconditioned, they become lazy and sloppy and they lose their structure and then when you go to run or walk, you have problems. Like you sprain ankles or you wound your arch or you, uh, sorry, you, you stretch out your arch too much or you get plantar fasciitis because the tendons become stretched to the point where they're on the verge of tearing. Or we have other problems with an unstable foot. Um, you trip and fall, right? You can roll your ankle, but you can also just trip and fall. And if you're an elderly person and you trip and fall, as Peter Atia has talked about many times, the chances of your mortality go up quite a bit from that point. So I'm a huge fan of minimalist footwear. Uh, in the car right now, I'm wearing my wilding shoes, my wilding nebula, which is like a super lightweight shoe that's almost like a sock or a sock with a very, very minimalist sole. It's far more minimalist than a Vivo Barefoot, which are shoes that I commonly recommend as starter shoes for people are getting into the minimalist game because they have some that are sporty and they have some that could pass as office shoes. But the wildlings are much more minimal. And I'm also wearing my correct toes at the moment. So those are little toe spreaders to help optimize the, uh, the position of my toes relative to the rest of my foot, right? To give a little space in between my toes because I've been riding bikes for 35 years. And the first 
probably six years, I rode in CDs. CDs have really rounded toe boxes. And so that started to change the shape of my foot and compromise the integrity of my arch. And that led me to seek out stiffer and stiffer shoes and stiffer and stiffer footbeds. So I have a stiff shoe under my foot and then I, my arch is super floppy and pronated and has no strength at all. So rather than strengthening my foot, I'm just gonna put a stiffer and stiffer higher arch under there. And this is what led me to eventually racing in carbon fiber footbeds in bond shoes. Probably just about the stiffest setup you could have. Uh, in 2004, I raced in lust shoes. If you know about those, I'm talking about these on my other pods, but this was a, it's a defunct brand now, but it was this custom shoe, fully custom carbon shoe that was pretty much the predecessor to Adam Hansen's Hansino shoe. Um, it was a carbon fiber orthotic with a cleat on the bottom and two seat belt straps across the top. Hansen just made sort of a carbon upper, a soft carbon upper that goes on the top. So his is a little more whatever, sliver-like. And uh, there's a certain minimal attraction to that aesthetic and that design concept, right? However, um, I don't think that having a rigid arch under your footbed in most cases is desirable. And wedging we can think of as really just compensation for all of these same problems. If you have really poor for foot function and you have excessive, excessively poor control of your rear foot or forefoot under load uh, or midfoot, then arching is really an attempt to negotiate that and keep you riding your bike and align things in a way that is optimal. Uh, but there are problems with this, right? Because power is generated at the hip. Power is generated at the hip or the knee in some cases, but mostly at the hip ideally. And certainly the hip and knee and not the ankle. We're not generating a lot of power at the ankle. I've seen a few riders try to get away with this. I've done some fits with surprisingly world tour riders whose saddles were way too high and they were pedaling and pushing down with their, their ankles the entire time. And that's a lot of calf work. And one rider in particular claimed that he got a lot of power out of pushing down with his calves. And this is not an effective way to pedal a bike in my opinion. He also couldn't climb in the saddle, no big surprise. All he could do was climb out of the saddle, which isn't sustainable as your only weapon. Um, it limits you to a very select spectrum of races, but probably limits you from gaining the conditioning needed in training to be really good in those races because you can only ride out of the saddle hard. So when we wedge, really, this is just another form of compensation for poor foot function. And when we make power at the hip and in particular, if the power of the hip is made in a way, let's say that you have a medial rotational instability, easy example. So you push down at the hip with your glute, and then you push down at the knee with your quads. We'll say there's some of both in this instance. And the knee rotates internally and comes in towards the top tube. So that's a collapse. That's a medial rotational instability. Every time you push down, your knee bangs the top tube or comes really close to the top tube. This is not optimal for many reasons. I would argue, and without going down several chapters of optimal alignment, Kelly Starrett versus knee over toes guy. But anyway, we, we understand that the force being made at the hip will not change if we put a one or two degree wedge under the foot. In spite of what some bike fitting drawings show us about optimal alignment with our simplified wedge drawing and how our knee is gonna magically snap into place. 
can wedging influence knee tracking? Well, sure, it can influence it. But will it change the way the force is made at the hips? No, I would offer not. Because force production at the hip is a function of fascial tension and neural programming of the muscular function of how we're driving the pedal at the hip, right? And the foot is sort of the outcome of all that programming, that neural engram, that movement engram that's happening. That's what's happening at the foot uh, in combination with the structural either integrity or disintegrity of the foot as a structure, right? So you might have really optimal force production at the hip from the perspective of uh, balance between posterior and anterior chain and also balance between lateral or medial forces. That's all I'll say it, right? If we have too much pronation, then we have, you know, this drift towards the medial line and then it can stretch the lateral lines. And then we end up with IT band syndrome. Pretty simple uh, explanation for that outcome. Someone with a medial rotational instability will usually have IT band problems on one or both sides, right? Because the IT band is just being stretched constantly. And then of course they cause problems when their IT bands hurt and they go somewhere or read online that they should stretch and foam roller them more. And those tissues are already stretched because the knee is collapsing towards the top two, right? Hopefully visually that makes sense in everybody's mind. So there are, I'm sure, instances where wedging is the best solution. Um, and some of these might be really simplified examples, but as a thought experiment, we can imagine someone with a fused ankle, right? And we know that their forefoot will not lie flat on the ground easily when it's weighted or in order for their arch to have the right shape, the first metatarsal cannot really contact the ground. So in that case, it may make sense to use um, an in-the-shoe wedge to bring the surface of the shoe up to support the first metatarsal because we do want that first metatarsal, that's the area under the, the base of the big toe, to engage. That's, that's really critical for that part to have good contact with your shoe. And I learned that the hard way many years ago with different shoe futzings that I did. You take away that platform and you go to stand up out of the saddle or really hit it and there's just nothing there. It's like the shoe's dropping away from you. It's a terrible, terrible feeling. Unless perhaps you're a supinator. So we could use wedging in certain instances where we have, you know, pinned ankle uh, or a fused ankle or an injury, something like this. Uh, but generally speaking, wedging is, it's really a band-aid. It's a compensatory device that's trying to help your knee alignment be tracking a little more effectively. And I would argue that while having nice knee alignment is probably important, it's also not necessary to assume that bad knee alignment needs to be corrected. We have to first look if there's a problem. Then we have to look if there's excessive motion in the joint or excessive tightness in a joint. And if there is, coupled with a lot of knee movement that's not tidy, right? Either a, a V pattern where the knee comes way out at the top of the pedal stroke would be common or a medial pronation where it would come in towards the top tube, uh, the downstroke, that would also be common. If that's happening, then it's safe to say uh, in combination with either a really big joint restriction or a hypermobility or pain, then we know, okay, we've got to try to find a way to square this up. But the mechanical, this is one of those instances where people look to bike fitters to fix a problem from a biomechanical perspective, 
And more than likely, it's actually the rider's function that is causing the knees to do what they do. And it's the rider's function that is causing the unhappy relationship with the bike. And there's not much that we can do as a bike fitter sometimes to influence that. Now, there are times when that can not be the case, and there are things we can do. We can offer a proprioceptive arch. My favorite are the G8 footbeds. Those work quite well. I'm currently using those in my bonds with a Nervoso footbed on top for texture and a little proprioceptive awareness. Um, and that's my first pick for most riders because this G8 footbed, they're highly customizable. And I'm not trying to make this a G8 commercial, but I do think it's a really good product. They have five different arch sizes or arch cookies, we could call them. Uh, one through five, five being the highest, one being the lowest. And they're also customizable. You can move the arch either medially or laterally under the foot and also fore aft. So we work to find the arch that gives you kind of the right proprioceptive feedback. Um, but these arch cookies are flexible. They're very flexible and movable. So they don't really offer any mechanical support to your foot. As soon as you push down hard on the pedal and your arch is going to do what it's going to do, that G8 will not prevent you from pronating or supinating. It will just guide you. It will give you an idea of where things are. So it's sort of splitting the difference in the sense that uh, it's helping us wake up proprioceptively where we are in space a little bit in the shoe. And it is in an artificial way. I can say that because, you know, again, when you're walking on flat ground, there's nothing that's going to poke up and hit you in the arch unless you're like walking on a pile of leaves or again on the beach, right? So we're not going to normally have things touching our arch. But a cycling shoe, in my opinion, this is one area where I really disagree with some of the things that Helen said on my podcast, Helen Hall, it was a really interesting conversation, but she talked about how many sensors we have in our feet and how rich the foot is proprioceptively. I agree with all that, but I think cycling shoes are a proprioceptive dead zone. They put our feet to sleep. I don't mean literally, sometimes they do. Sometimes you get hot foot and pins and needles and all those things, but I mean, proprioceptively, it's hard for people to know what's going on with their feet in a cycling shoe. And I think some of that is because the environment isn't changing. When you go for a walk barefoot, you walk on concrete and dirt and grass, and you're constantly sensing the environment. Pressure sensors and texture sensors and temperature sensors are all giving you feedback. Spatial sensors, they're all telling you whether the ground is collapsing under your foot or how hard it is or how hot it is or how scratchy it is or how pokey it is. And when we go in a cycling shoe, all those things get dialed down because it's the same surface every single pedal stroke, but also there's no heel strike. There's no sort of, okay, we are stepping and then we're midfoot phase, gate phase stance, and then we're pushing off. There's none of that dynamic movement throughout the foot. There's none of that real transfer of weight, right? Instead, we just get this sort of nebulous pressure kind of near the ball of the foot, but only because it's an axle of the pedal, not because there's a lot of movement happening there. And that's sort of what's going on. And there's some fitters who would disagree with this perspective. Perspective, uh, Happy Friedman would be one. He talks about how the calves are pumps and that we should do more ankling. I don't really believe in that. I, I don't think that's super effective. But man, cycling is such an individual sport. I mean, everybody knows who Bobby Julik is. That guy used to ankle like crazy when he was a junior and he used to drop everybody. So I don't know, was that in spite of or because of? Like, 
there are so many unique ways to solve the problem of making power on a bike. We have to recognize that there's a tension in bike fitting between the preconceived notions of how I think someone ought to look on the bike or how they ought to sit on a bike and how they actually do make power. And the negotiation comes when we say, well, what's working and what isn't? And the litmus test, again, to come back to form versus function, this is the same discussion. Does it work? Is function optimized? You know, are you trying to pedal a bike in a way that is causing you pain? Are you trying to pedal a bike in a way that is causing a sensation of crookedness, which, look, when when people come to me and they say, I'm really rotated, I feel crooked on the saddle, I'm hanging off one side, I've got the saddle sores only on one side, I've got a T-band problems on one side, I've got lower back pain on one side. These asymmetries are the warnings that if you keep going, it's just going to spiral, to use my own terminology, into something worse, right? Um, the first warning is the sensations of crookedness. The the sense that things just aren't aligned and that the bike is is symmetrical and you are not. That's the, the prologue. The, the first stage of the race comes when you get your first niggle from that asymmetry, right? The pain. And then that's when the lesson starts, the real lesson. Uh, if you're smart enough to pay attention to your body and you're in tune enough with things, you start to feel quickly when the asymmetry comes that you need to begin to address things. And that's when we're being attentive and conscious. We're not being tribalistic and we're not believing that we have to train or keep riding or keep racing no matter what, because otherwise daddy won't love us or mommy won't love us or my wife won't love me if I don't win this race or my brother will think that I'm not tough enough or my sister will think that I'm not as fast as her or faster than her, et cetera, et cetera, right? Where do our belief systems come in conflict with the events in our lives and cause friction? This is the question. Frequently, I find that when people tell me I don't know, what they're saying really is people actually know. They just don't want to look at it. What they're really saying is I have a preconceived notion about how life should be going and it's not going that way. And so what they're saying is, I don't know, but what they mean is there's friction here for me. I'm unhappy because I can't get past my understanding of this problem. My understanding is it should go this way. I have a problem and I'm trying to solve it by doing things that I know how to do and it's not working. And there's friction there. That's what they're really saying. They're saying, I can't handle the fact that my belief system is inaccurate in a way. Yeah, it's all harsh. I don't know. That's what's come to me recently. So the short answer on wedging is I don't really use or recommend wedging. I tend to give my clients a lot of discussion around foot function and hip function. I think that the answer lies in good biomechanics of the human and the neutral foot in the pedal is the best scenario. That said, I do, I'm not dogmatically opposed to wedging. I think it can work well for some riders. I think that modern, most modern cycling shoes put the foot in a really crappy position. A dorsiflexed, like it's like a mild version of the windless mechanism because when you put your toe up, the same thing happens in a cycling shoe. You drop the metatarsals 
or put the first toe up. Oops, sorry, construction site, we've got a little happy buzzy noise going here. When we put the, the first ray up, we dorsiflex that toe, we activate the windlass mechanism. And remember what I was saying about gait. The first part of gait is the supination phase. When you strike at the heel and you immediately go to the outside, that's deceleration. Because your body, when you, when you run with proper technique or walk, you don't heel strike super hard because you'll give yourself a stress fracture. So the body learns to sense how hard the surface is very, very quickly, like in each actual step and will modify your gait accordingly. Now, if those systems have been shut down or dulled by years of bike riding and then you go for your first run, you're probably going to annihilate yourself for all these reasons. You've got weak feet and your system's not perceptibly awake to remember what running's like. So you're going to heel strike like crazy most likely and you're going to give yourself shin splints or stress fractures or really just make yourself insanely sore perhaps. Um, most bike racers have had this experience. So when we heel strike, that's supination. Especially when we go through the midfoot stance and we have a strong arch, you're rolling in the outside of the foot. And then it goes five, four, three, two, one through the metatarsals and you push off that first metatarsal. This is pronation. As you roll from the fifth to the first metatarsal, that is pronation. The arch actually pronates during that period. How much depends on how much force there is and how strong the foot is, how much structure there is in the foot, what the tensegrity of the system is. So whether it's excessive or acceptable pronation depends. It also depends on how fast you're running. If you're sprinting for your life, there's going to be quite a bit of pronation, right? Could be. So when we put the foot in a cycling shoe, what we're doing is we're trapping the foot in pronation. Or also another way to think about it is the first part of the gait is deceleration. The last part is acceleration, pushing off. And superficially, this might be like, well, that's a good idea, you know? If I trap my foot in acceleration, I can just accelerate all the time when I ride my bike. And that's um, an interesting thought. But it also is, I would argue, incorrect. What we want is a foot that is allowed to move from neutral. That is a flat place. No dorsiflexion of the foot and no rise of the heel. No heel-to-toe drop. This neutral platform will allow supination and pronation to happen naturally in the shoe. And probably one will happen more than the other for most people. That tends to be the way it works out. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, there could be. If it's excessive, it can be, but probably just someone's tendency normally. And so we recognize that. And then that motion, Stefan's theory at lower is that it captures the motion of the foot in that pronation period, right? That's his idea. So, uh, don't ask me any lore updates, please, because I don't have a lot of info. They're coming. I might be wearing a pair soon. That's what I got. When I have more information, I'll do some more stuff about that, for those of you who are wondering. Thank you for your patience. So, the problem with all modern cycling shoes, some more than others, is that they dorsiflex the toe and they have heel to toe drop. The best example of that, for those of you who are the old school cycling club, for all these reasons, was the Karnak shoe which had the world's highest heel-to-toe drop. It was like a pump, basically, but the cycling version, and French, and it had an extremely almond-shaped toe, like a pointed toe, almost like a witch boot. And these things were terrible. And I raced in them for a year or two and somehow managed to get away with it. But my foot had to adapt, and it was not good. 
So uh, we're looking for shoes that have less heel to toe drop and less toe spring. And among those is the Bont at the moment. They are some of the lowest on the market and some other shoes have more and some have less and you just have to explore with it. Specialized has 1.5 degrees or millimeters, depending on which literature you read, of medial posting built into their shoe. That is, they have a wedge built into all of their body geometry shoes. And this is designed to offset pronation. And this was based off data that I think something like 78% of human population is seen as an overpronator or a pronation tendency. I don't know if it's over. And then the remainder is supination, presumably. And apparently no one has a neutral foot in this model. And I will say that some people get in specialized shoes with this degree and a half of medial varus uh, wedging, I believe. I get those two confused, actually, which is interesting because I'm a bike fitter. But depending on which circle you look in, varus and valgus can actually be flipped, depending on whether you're talking about the foot or the wedge. So I prefer to say medial posting. So what I'm saying is the wedge is thicker on the inside facing the crank arm and thinner on the outside, right? So your foot is canted out is how we might say it colloquially. And when we use these types of wedges, we're offsetting the tendency for the ankle to collapse in. And again, if the force is generated in a way that caused that ankle pattern, then it may not help. I suppose if your ankle's just weak, then why would you want to wedge it outside? You're just going to strain the medial ligaments. That's how I see it, right? But maybe not. Uh, people adapt and they do their things. And if you have a foot that has really, really poor first metatarsal contact and you're having trouble driving the pedal with power and you throw a degree and a half of wedging in there, it might drive the pedal up towards your first metatarsal and you might feel more contact, right? So that's one explanation for why you might, air quotes, make better power. But really the issue is the function of the foot. This is the the challenge I have with the wedging. So there's a tension there between giving someone an immediate result for the day that might solve their problem versus giving them, uh, teaching them how to fish. And as you know, I tend to want to teach people how to fish and go for the long game. I think that's what I've got with wedges. I'll, I'll just review, you know, you can have three different types of wedges in shoes. You can have cleat wedges, which wedge the entire foot. They go between the cleat and the shoe. You can have in the shoe wedges, which go in the forefoot of the shoe. And then you have heel wedges, which go under the heel. And some fitters will claim that because the heel is floating, heel wedges don't do anything. I don't actually agree with that. I think they can influence your function a little bit. And really they're primarily proprioceptive, but proprioception is quite important as it turns out. So there's that. In the shoe wedges tend to not be as a, an effective solution in many cases, because the problem is they take up volume under the foot. And so they kind of push the foot up into the upper of the shoe. And then you might get numbness. So they might feel better under the first metatarsal. People might really like the way they feel. Uh, but the challenge, the trade-off is that if you have a high volume foot or even a medium volume foot, you might get numbness because then you've got not enough room in the toe box vertically in your shoe, right? So there's that whole thing. That's what I got on wedging. Uh, I wish that I had some sort of magic formula. Like if you have two degrees of four foot valgus, you should use this many wedges. Some fitters definitely try to operate that way. I don't. 
uh, I have a different perspective on it. And my perspective is only wedge when absolutely necessary. That's basically my answer. I really hope that was helpful. I kind of feel like I just rambled and talked to myself while I'm on I-70. That's what I can offer you today. I will try to do something interesting while I'm here. Uh, Nathan Haas is going to be at Unbound and Alex Howes and Emma Grant and uh, some people at POC are going to be there as well. So maybe I'll, I'll wrangle up someone for an interesting interview and we can share the things, the discussions that you can not just listen to me the whole time. In any case, thanks for your attention and I hope that was helpful. I'm not sure if it was. Let me know if you think it sucked. You can literally just write, you suck in the Instagram comments and I will not be that bummed out. Um, I appreciate honesty. Another way to say that is the ugliest truth is better looking than the best dressed lie. Have a great day. I will report back after Unbound and thanks for listening, everyone. Pedal fast, pedal consciously. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about, and while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people, and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode 
that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings.